All right, uh, we're in part seven of eight. This is hard to believe, is that right? Part seven of eight in this series called Keep Jesus Weird. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, so in addition to welcoming all of y'all, I wanna welcome all of our people joining us online. Thank y'all for joining us in this way as well. You have study guides, you can take those out if, if you find those helpful. Those have a scripture readings, those are the long readings we're gonna do today and it's a little helpful, it'll be on the screens as well. Um, but before I get to part seven of eight of this study of the book of Acts, I, I've got to start uh, with an apology and I really am uh, sorry about uh, something that happened last week and I just kind of overstepped and I just wanted to say um, to those whose feelings I hurt and whose friendships I might have lost, like all I can say is I'm sorry and I, I just promise that it won't happen again. Um, so uh, next time, I mean, I pick on a sport, it won't be lacrosse. And um, I, I just want you to hear me say how much I love and respect the sport of lacrosse. And I just missed the moment when lacrosse took the place of high school football on the throne of Texan idolatry. But apparently that's where we are now. And I love, I love the game. And I, to me, you, it, it takes a lot of courage to play lacrosse. I couldn't do it uh, in those shorts with that little butterfly catcher. Like, I, I, kudos, kudos to you. Got raked over the coals a little bit this week, so I just want to start there. And I decided uh, to start this sermon with something a little less controversial. Uh, so let's talk about Hitler. Um, <laughs> This is the worst transition you'll ever hear <laughs> into Hitler. Um, so I'm a little bit of a, an, a student of history. I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to like German history because my roots are German and I, I kind of geek out on it a little bit and especially in spurts. I, I don't know if any guys in the room can relate to this, but I fixate on things like for a season, like for a time I'll just like go like all into you know, the history of Hitler. And lately I've just kind of been curious about what it was that made this guy, who frankly, for a lot of his young adult life, was a pretty typical, somewhat radical politician. I mean, there's been radical politicians before. There's been like nationalist politicians before that came, you know, up from the ashes, uh, you know, of defeat like he did in, in Germany. And, and they didn't become Hitler. He's the only one, you know, responsible for 11 million civilian deaths. 11 million is a lot. Six million Jewish deaths. Blood was on his hands. So what was it? And you know, I'm not the only one who's wondered this. A lot of historians and social scientists are like, what exactly caused this guy to lose it in the way that he did? And you can't just say it was his politics. Other people have had his politics and haven't resorted to genocide. You can't just say he was an ambitious guy. <laughs> There's been plenty of other ambitious people who didn't kill 11 million civilians. And so what was the secret ingredient in what made him who he was? Um, I find this a fascinating question, and I am biased in my answer, but I think it's fairly clear. When you take a deep dive into 
Hitler's story, you discovered that the source of his, uh, who he became, wasn't his theology or his ideology or his politics or his uh, ambitions. The source of it was theology. It was theological. It was his core conviction, his most fundamental belief about truth that planted the seed in him that eventually became the man we know as Adolf Hitler. And the seed that was planted, the initial idea, wasn't entirely evil. I don't think he meant to become a villain. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I wanna talk about that phenomenon a little bit today. Um, But I just wanted to start by talking about Hitler's theology, because there's been a little bit of conversation, maybe you've heard in college classrooms or on Reddit or wherever, like, was he a Christian? Like, that's what I heard when I was agnostic, atheist, like, anti-Christian in my, in my attitude. I heard Hitler was a Christian. How can Christianity be good? <laughs> and that's how, that's how we use Hitler. Like, if you want to shut down an argument, just call somebody or something Hitler. Like, that's it, and it's over. And we do that all the time. And Christians and atheists do that to each other. Christians are like, he wasn't a Christian, he was an atheist. Eh, It's not true, but it's a convenient argument to make. And then atheists are like, nope, he was a Christian, he said he was a Christian, he did say he was a Christian, but I think the record shows that he wasn't actually a Christian. Y'all know that not everybody who says they're Christian is a Christian, right? Please tell me that you know that. (laughs) Hitler grew up in the Catholic Church, he was baptized, in the Catholic Church, he called himself a Christian his whole life. But um, his own writings and uh, the testimony of others around him suggest quite forcefully that Hitler used Christianity as a ruse to get elected in a highly Christian nation. He called himself a Christian hypocrite, not because he was bad at being a good Christian, because he never really felt like a Christian at all. He just used the label to get elected. Imagine that, a politician. Anyway, <laughs> that's what he did. Actually, um, if you read his writings and speeches, it's clear that he hated most of what Christianity is all about, like despised three-fourths of the Bible, hated all the Old Testament for obvious reasons, and he hated Paul's letters too because he accused Paul of infecting the pure Christian faith, whatever he thought that was, with Jewish ideas. And so, I know, and so he... Uh, he, uh, he, he just despised that about Christianity. He also despised um, some of the most central Judeo-Christian values like forgiveness and self-sacrifice and loving your enemies and you know, humility. He thought those things were anti-progress, anti-state, uh, anti-evolution. He thought it was just the worst of humanity. Um, he did kind of believe in Jesus, but only in a way that didn't really make sense. He called Jesus, uh, uh, atheists will say, that he, he believed so much in Jesus that he championed Jesus as a fighter, which is true, but you have to include the rest of the quote, like when he said that Jesus was an Aryan fighter um, whose real dad was a white Roman soldier uh, and whose mission on earth was to overthrow the Jewish establishment and whose life ended in failure when um, the Jews thwarted his political coup. 
I, I'm not sure you can call yourself a Christian if your belief is that Jesus' life ended in failure. It seems to be one of those thresholds, you know? <laughs> I don't think that stands up. But that's exactly what Hitler believed about Jesus. This is what Adolf Hitler said about Christianity in 1941. He said, Christianity is the most insane thing that a human brain in its delusion has ever brought forth. It's a mockery of everything divine. Can we agree? Hitler, probably not a Christian. <laughs> right. He found uh, our ideals and our morality to be appallingly weak. And he thought that if his um, end game was to come to fruition, which was the uprising of the German state as the superior human race, um, that uh, they would have to leave uh, those ideals behind because that spoke weakness to him. Most honest historians agree that um, given more time, Hitler would have done to the Christians what he did to the Jews because they stood as a threat to his most fundamental belief. Hitler was also not an atheist because he had transcendental uh, beliefs about truth. Now, if he wasn't a Christian, then what was he? Um, I think one of the most underestimated, undervalued parts of his life is how deeply Hitler was involved in the occult. I don't mean this to get weird, but a lot of his inner circle was involved deeply with things like astrology, and they called themselves magicians, and not the fun kind. You know, <laughs> rabbit out of the hat. That's not what these guys were up to. Like, there was some darker stuff than that. And uh, they, they dreamed of the day that they would be able to resuscitate ancient pagan gods of old and make them come back to life. And so there was all kinds of um, weird stuff happening in terms of Hitler's actual belief, but the fundamental driver was this belief that the true God or, or set of gods created the German or Germanic people as uh, the master race. And the will of this God or gods was to um, bring the Germanic people back to their rightful place as the master race. And to do so, they needed a, a, a Messiah, a chosen one. And his inner circle told Adolf Hitler that that's him. They convinced him that he was the chosen one. And so Adolf Hitler's most fundamental belief about what's true about the world and God and himself was that uh, the German people are the master race and Adolf Hitler is the master German. And that was the little seed that seemed to him to be benevolent that he planted in his own soul years before he became the maniacal um, dictator and murderer that he became. I don't think he intended things to go that way when he planted that little seed. But that's how all really bad ideas <laughs> begin. With a little seed of an idea that seems like a good idea at the time. All right, so it wasn't his politics or psychosis that made him a madman, it was his theology. And the reason this matters for all of us is um, regardless of uh, how good or bad you are or think you are, your core convictions define you over the long haul. Your most fundamental beliefs about what's true in the world, about God and yourself, define the trajectory of your life. And if you don't know what those are, uh, you could probably do an inventory of how you spend your time and your money and how you spend your thoughts and um, figure it out. 
but we all are tempted constantly to put at the center of our most core convictions something other than God. And when we do that, the point of today's message is going to be when we do that, that it all slowly erodes. Everything we think we want eludes us whenever we put something besides the one true God at the throne of our hearts. And uh, that's what today's story from Scripture is about. It's about a man whose fundamental core conviction was simply this, three words, Jesus is God. Now, there's a lot that came from that, and you're going to hear Jesus in Stephen's words. He's already become like Jesus because he has Jesus on the throne of his heart, which is exactly what happens. Regardless of what's on your heart, you become a reflection of it. Okay? And so Stephen is already becoming like Jesus, saying the same words in the same spirit as Jesus. But what happens when he falls into the hands of men, priests, who have on the thrones of their hearts something other than the truth? Something other than God. Obviously, we're on a path toward darkness and destruction today. So let's uh, dig in and see where this goes. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 12, and verse 15 is where I will um, begin. We're introduced again to Stephen, who was first introduced last week in the um, story from Acts 6, where Stephen was identified as one of the seven leaders in the church who was appointed, voted on, approved to basically uh, handle the first Christian conflict. Within the church, there was a, a little bit of a fight about some widows who weren't getting their due at the food distribution. And these were Hellenistic Jews. If you remember from last week, they were Greek-speaking Jews whose families had lived somewhere else other than Jerusalem, and they had found their way back to Jerusalem speaking Greek instead of the mother tongue of Aramaic. And most of them were citizens of Rome, Unlike the Jews in Jerusalem, who were just subjects of Rome, they were citizens because they or their fathers or grandfathers had been slaves and their freedom had been purchased. And in the Roman Empire, when you were a freed slave, you became a citizen, all right? I promise I'm not just geeking out and trying to sound smart for the sake of sounding smart. Like, it's gonna make sense in just a minute, I promise. So, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke, and then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, when you speak truth to people living in darkness, like they will do whatever it takes to subvert you. Some of you have experienced this when you're speaking the truth in love, but then lies are spread about you and stuff like that. It makes it a little tricky sometimes, and that's what happens here. And they brought him then before the Sanhedrin. Now, uh, in the slide before that, let's just go back uh, to the slide before that, please. It mentions this synagogue of the freedmen. And um, this was a Jewish synagogue in the city of Jerusalem that was built by and for these Hellenistic Jews. So the freedmen were people that used to be slaves, and they were freed. They bought their freedom, or their families did, and they became citizens 
of Rome. And so they came back to Jerusalem and they built their own synagogue where they spoke Greek probably. And, um, you know, it was kind of a superiority thing, I think. And there's one part of this um, list of places that stands out to me. It's Cilicia. Cilicia is where this guy you've heard of, the Apostle Paul, was from. And he's not the Apostle Paul yet. Uh, He is not a Christian yet. Uh, He is probably a member of this synagogue. Stephen probably is too, as a Hellenistic Jew. And so they are the ones that sold Stephen out. Sometimes a prophet's not welcome in his own place, right? Some of you have dealt with this as you've become Christians and you've gone back to be with your families at Thanksgiving and they're like, we raised you to be something else. You know, it's it's a tricky thing to have God on the throne of your heart sometimes. But that's what Stephen faces, his own people, his own brothers, betray him and spread lies about him. And uh, this is what happens next, his response to their accusations. I think this is epic, but you've got to dial in with me here. It's gonna be a little bit of a journey, okay? Go ahead and take that last sip of coffee and like uh, get into this with me. Because Stephen's gonna take us on a journey through the Jewish story. Four points he makes, and he's making them for a very good reason. But see if you can identify them as we read through this. Then the high priest asked Stephen, he's being interrogated here, his life's on the line. Are these charges true? And Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Move one. Leave your country and your people. Go to the land I will show you. God says, I will show you the land to go to after you leave. And Abraham went. He left. Here's the second move. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. So we fast forward a few years here. Joseph's brothers were the patriarchs. They stood as the symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. They betrayed Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, it says. But God was with Joseph. And so Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt. There's your second move. The third move. Then our people in Egypt greatly increased. And at that time, Moses was born He heard the Lord say, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt as they were being enslaved. I've come down to set them free. This is the same Moses the Israelites or the Hebrews at that point rejected with the words. Who made you ruler and judge? Who do you think you are? And he led them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of their chains, performed signs and wonders in Egypt, the Red Sea, over 40 years in the wilderness. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to their slavery in Egypt. Our ancestors had the tabernacle. This is the fourth move. The tabernacle was a tent that the people of Israel would would pack up whenever they moved from one place to another, and then they would set it up whenever they settled for a while. And it stood as a symbol of God's presence with them. But it was just a tent. And it was mobile, just like God is. God can move wherever he wants. It's like the tent moved with the people. The tabernacle of the covenant law was with them in the wilderness. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place or a house. And not just any house. David wanted to build God a forever home, like a retirement house (laughs) for God in Israel, the God of Jacob. But David died before that could happen, and so it was Solomon who built a house for him. However... The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Now, let me just pause. Where was Stephen when he was saying all this stuff? He was in front of the Sanhedrin, which most likely is in the temple. 
He's in the building that he's saying doesn't matter. The most important building to his immediate audience, the priests of the Sanhedrin, saying this all could go away and it wouldn't matter one bit. God does not live here. And he doesn't just say it out of his own opinion. He uses scripture to make his point. He says, as the prophet said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you gonna build for me? Says the Lord. And that's Old Testament prophecy. But, you know, if your heart is hanging on making your religion better than other people's religion, you'll build your God a house that's better than their God's house. And no amount of scripture or prophecy or truth will stand in your way. Because our God deserves a nicer house than our enemies' gods have. And that's why they built a temple. And so there was, that, you know, building a temple for God was a benevolent idea at the time. Let's build a nice place. Our God deserves more than a tent. Our God doesn't deserve to be homeless and wandering. Let's build God a house. That's not an evil idea. But over time, what evil does is it takes a seemingly good idea and develops it into something destructive. And by the time Stephen speaks these words to these men, saying that these priests who should be the stewards of the hope of the living God, who should be the ones who get it, they've completely lost the plot. And they have taken God off the throne and put in their own system there instead. This system of temple worship that literally puts God in a box and keeps him there. And says to the rest of the world, if you want to talk to God, you've got to talk to us first. We'll see you at the door. Have your offering ready. That's why Jesus turned over the temples, the, the, the tables in the temple. That's why he said, this thing could go away and I'll rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about the system. He was talking about religion in its negative form, which keeps the people who need God most the furthest away. Listen, this was the riskiest thing Stephen said. But let's revisit these four points. First thing he said was that Abraham trusted God even when things were uncertain. Stephen is reminding these guys who've heard this story before, they knew Abraham's story, but he's reminding them that God can be trusted, that his word is true. Second, he moves to Moses, and he, said, he moves to Joseph, and he says that Joseph, even though he was betrayed by his own brothers, overcame their betrayal. And then, in a real act of mercy, he eventually restored his brothers. He redeemed them and forgave them. Clearly, he's saying that Joseph was a foreshadowing of Jesus, and that the brothers were a foreshadowing of the ones who betrayed him. Then he moves to Moses. And he said, Moses set a bunch of people free who were slaves. And the whole time he was setting them free, they just complained. Ah, we don't want to be out here in the wilderness. It was better when we were slaves. Let's just go back to Egypt, you guys. Like, they were complaining the whole time Moses was liberating them. Clearly, Stephen drawing parallels between Moses and Jesus, between the Hebrews in Egypt and the Israelites in the first century. 
saying that even as you complain, even if you're ungrateful, even if you're stubborn, hard-headed, heart of heart, Jesus came to set you free, and freedom is yours if you want it. And then he speaks of the temple to guys whose income depended on the temple system. It's a risky move. The guys, that, their livelihood depended on it. Look, their core belief was that they were entitled by birth to this power that they had, which seemed to be a good idea. It makes our society work the way it works. But over time, it became something sinister. Over time, it became evil. The reason that any of this matters to us is because you don't have to be a priest to replace God with a system of your choosing, an idol of your choice, your most core conviction, not your priorities, not your aspirations, not your politics. I'm talking about your most core conviction that gives rise to all that other stuff, your most core conviction. If it's not God, if it's not like Stephen, Jesus is God, period. That's what drives me, that's what I live for, that's my most fundamental belief. If it's anything else, eventually, that becomes something sinister. That's hard for me to say because it feels judgmental, but I've seen it happen. And if you're not sure who your God is, what it is that sits on the throne of your heart, I don't even have to inventory your time and money and all that. Just tell me who your enemies are. Because if your enemies are those people, then I know that you've got something other than the God who is Jesus on the throne of your heart. If your enemies are liberals, they're destroying this country. If your enemies are conservatives, they're taking our rights away. Like if your enemies are any group of people, then you still have something less than the God of grace presented in the Bible, the God of scripture at the throne of your heart. Because Jesus said that when he sits on the throne of your heart, you will love your enemies. The crazy thing about loving your enemies is that once you love them, they're not your enemy anymore. And then Paul picked up where Jesus left off and he said that our enemies are not of flesh and blood. That our enemies are spiritual and they're coming after our souls and the souls of the people who don't stand with us. Like, and that's who we're fighting against. Not the people. And that's how you know. That's how you know. And this is what happened next in Stephen's story. This is uh, in Acts 7. Toward the end of his talk, he said, I love this part. He said, you stiff-necked people. I don't know if it's necked or naked. But I, when you're from East Texas, naked means something else. So um, you're, he says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, uh, those are some weird insults. If somebody came up to you and said, your neck is so stiff and your ear is still not circumcised. Like, that would be a weird thing to say. 
And I think, honestly, what's happened to Stephen is Jesus has so overcome his heart that he can't even insult, right? Like, he, he's, too, he's too nice. His insult game is gone. Like, he needs some work. But he's doing this just to make a, a greater point. He says, you're just like our, your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you betrayed and murdered him, the righteous one too, you have, who have received the law that was given through the angels and not obeyed it. Put something other than God on the throne of your heart. Let's see how this story ends. This is uh, what the reaction is of those with dark hearts against the light of Christ shining in Stephen. This is uh, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's a beautiful image. As they were gnashing their teeth and rushing him, like he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing. It's the only time Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father instead of sitting. And the implication here is that Jesus is standing up to welcome Stephen into the kingdom. And as they cover their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Stoning is as horrific as you imagine. It still happens today in some parts of the world, honestly. And it is awful. And they began to pelt him with large stones with the intent of killing him. Meanwhile, all the people that were stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who would one day become known as the Apostle Paul who was overseeing this little enterprise. And when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that language sound familiar to anyone? Like if you were here at Easter, you heard us talk about Jesus praying for the Father to receive his spirit. He dies like Jesus died. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That sound familiar? You see how Jesus is already living in Stephen? When he said this, he fell asleep because when you, when you die in Christ, you don't die. You fall asleep for a time, but it's not the end. He fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, the great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is how God's church was spreading beyond Jerusalem. It's on this darkest day when Stephen died. Horrific, chaotic day. But Jesus told them that his message must spread beyond Jerusalem in the first chapter of Acts, part one, six weeks ago. And this is how it happened. Sometimes God takes the most horrific things and turns them around for victory and good. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. Saul, the apostle Paul, one day he'll become the apostle Paul, and he was dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. All right. Darkness. It always reacts violently against the light, including whatever darkness remains in you. Darkness cannot abide the light. 
can't stand it. Light is an existential threat to darkness. And here's what I thought. Six years ago when I became a Christian, I thought that when the Holy Spirit took up residence in my heart, then I didn't have any more darkness. That I wouldn't have to worry about those temptations anymore. And a lot of people think the same because people like me tell you to think that. And, and then you accept Jesus and then you feel the same temptation. The same darkness wells up inside of you. Wait, I thought I gave my life to Jesus. The truth is, maybe you gave 98% of yourself to Jesus, or 99%, and when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you to take residence in you, it's not like a, a tornado that just blows away all the stuff that was there. It's more like he's cleaning house. One room at a time. Purging one room at a time. Who you were, making room for who he wants you so desperately to be. But sometimes there's a little closet. Sometimes there's a little space where a little darkness still resides. And when you're tired, exhausted, stressed out, when you have a bad day or a string of bad days and something happens, that's when you're most susceptible. That's when the darkness reappears with the same old temptations. And the allure of that darkness is this idea in your mind that, hey, maybe my happiness is what really matters. Maybe my entitlement or my success, my fulfillment is what really matters. Maybe I'm special. Maybe I deserve the best. And if God won't give it to me, then I'll go find it. And what seemed to be like a good idea, like happiness, becomes a path toward sure and certain destruction if you stay on it. Because along that path, there will be people who try to rein in things that you're doing that they don't think are good for you, people that love you. But if they stand between you and your happiness, forget them, they're your enemy now. Or if God doesn't give you what you think you need in order to achieve that happiness, that core conviction that's driving you, then forget God too. Anyone who has happiness on the throne of their heart is destined and condemned to a life of misery. Because that happiness you seek is too elusive. You'll never find it. Other people will always seem happier than you. Anyone who has riches on the throne of their heart will die in poverty. Maybe not monetarily, but spiritually and otherwise in poverty. It happens all the time. Anyone who has attractiveness on the throne of their heart will always feel ugly until the day they die because someone else is prettier or better looking or more buff or more wanted than they are. Anything else, anything lower than God you put on the throne of your heart will come to get you eventually, even if it seemed like a good idea at the time. But when it's Jesus, when it's Jesus, even death cannot bring you despair. Even death, which I think we all can agree is the worst case scenario, <laughs> the worst possible outcome in our minds is death. But if even the worst possible outcome cannot hold you down, if even Death is a little nap. 
and you're free. You're free from the chains of your past. You're free. And even when you die, you're fully alive. You can trust God even in uncertain times because his promises are true. Even when you feel betrayed, forgotten, forsaken, by his mercy you will overcome. Even when you complain like an entitled little brat, even when you're ungrateful for all that God has given you, he still offers you freedom from your chains. And no matter what kind of box you try to put him in, he will not live there. He only belongs on the throne. So have him there. And you will become a reflection of his grace and his glory. Your only enemy will be evil. Your only fear will be losing your relationship with him. Can we pray together? Jesus, set us free and help us to break whatever idolatrous things we've put on the thrones of our heart. The things that bring us destruction, the things that bring us down. Help us to take them and put them where they belong to reinstate you on the thrones of our hearts. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you with our whole heart. In your name we pray, amen.